just take a moment to quietly welcome one another into the room. And to welcome our ancestors into the room. Whether it be our ancestors in this tradition or our ancestors from our communities. Let's welcome all beings into this room. Let's welcome Mother Earth, who always welcomes us into this room. This is kind of weird being up like this. <laughs> My family's here today, so I have to be really good. <laughs> so thank you for sitting, those of you who have sat today. And thank you for practicing the Dharma Chalk. Um, for those of you who practice with the Dharma, we need a great deal of recognition of our causal interdependence in this world right now. So, um, Thank you for trying to realize that. I want to talk about realizing justice, which for me, I do not understand as any different from realizing reality. Anyway, right up front. <laughs> um, When we sit zazen, our zazen sitting meditation, for those of you who don't know that word, our hope is to be straight-spined, upright. Why upright? In part, that's where we find our balance. That's where we feel ourselves rooted into the earth. That's where we feel ourselves not so easily toppled over by whatever is happening. But uprightness and an open heart is the same posture. 
If we fold, so goes the heart. And when we're sitting, in this tradition, we talk about doing nothing all the time. But that nothing is a profound doing nothing. The doing of nothing doesn't mean nothing is accomplished. A great deal is accomplished by doing nothing, it's just we're not the ones accomplishing it. The whole cosmos, the whole universe, all of life is accomplishing it through us. But we cannot release that until we stop. Until we stop, we can't allow life in its complete integrity and wisdom to manifest itself as each of us. And so, our meditation practice usually starts off with a, if it's anything like mine was, starts off with a whole lot of willing and wanting and doing. I want to be better, I want to be good, I want to be awake, I want to be, you know, this is spiritual practice. We go in full-blown ego. And we begin to see that there's stuff there that we didn't look at or want to look at. And at first, that is felt as quite personal. I have pain, it's my history, it has to do with my parents and what's happened to me during my time. It's a, it has a personal aspect. Not for everyone. And that's something I'll talk about a little later. Um, for people trained in a highly individualized community, it feels very personal. It's not necessarily the case for all of Buddhists everywhere. So that's something for us to start to realize. It's also not the case for people who necessarily come from a community that has a deep sense of we in community. They might come to this practice and say, actually, I'm engaging in this practice not just for me but for my people who don't have access to this. That is also something that comes up for people. So, but in the beginning there is this sense of I. But over time as we open to it and it's hard to open to, right? There's these cries and these screams and this pain. It's usually not the bliss and joy that we run away from. <laughs> Some of you maybe, but usually not. And if we are running away from the bliss and joy, it's because there's such a deep pain in us that doesn't know how to accept bliss and joy. So, we begin to feel that, and Avalokiteshvara Kuan Yin, who's around the corner over here in the front of the uh, female ancestors' altar. Avalokiteshvara, that bodhisattva, that one that reminds us about compassion practice, is to open to the joys and cries of the world. We often say open to the cries of the world, but depending on the way you, you cut up the name in Sanskrit, it can mean either one. But to open to the cries of the world is what we're doing in Zazen. It's the world, in the beginning, is just this little one. It's just me. I'm the world at the moment, because it's all I have the stability of mind and attention and clarity to pay attention to. 
But as we are with the pain of ourselves, we begin to build the practice of um, being with suffering. I want to say something about compassion. That word karuna, that we translate as compassion, that first root kar, which comes from the root kir, which is the same root as karma, what we call karma, means to act. So there is an action component in the word that we translate as karma. It's not just the arising of the capacity to be with suffering, although that's a part of it. It's the arising of the deep desire to end the suffering of all beings. I want to understand how to be available to the ceasing of the suffering of all beings. So, as we open to that, you may notice over time that there is a deeper and deeper sense of suffering where that suffering becomes not just some personal story because the person we thought the story was associated with starts to dissolve. This thing we talk about in Zen of small mind and big mind or separate self, right? We come in with a sense of separate self that I'm over here and you all are over there and I'm going to go change the world in accordance with whatever makes me happy and shove away the things that don't make me happy. We have that idea of who we are. But we start to realize that that separation is really hard to find. We begin to see that we can't find it and that actually all of you are me in this moment. The inside-outside separation, I can't find the inside-outside separation when I look at my mind. I actually can't. Where is it? Where is the moment in the mind and in experience where I end and you begin? From my perspective, I cannot find that. So when that happens, then something shifts fairly profoundly in terms of suffering itself. And that is, your suffering is mine. I don't know the difference. There is no difference between the two. When Dogen says, the Buddha way is to study the self. You've all heard these lines. We say them constantly which means they're important. Um, <laughs> the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. Now it doesn't say, just forget the self, everybody. It says, to study the self is to forget the self. So forgetting the self doesn't happen without deeply studying the self. To forget the self is to be realized by the myriad things, which is an old Chinese way of saying everything be realized by everything that arises in the mind. So the true, what we truly are is the arising of everything we experience without separation. That's what we truly are. So in that then, what is personal suffering, what is social suffering, what is, we like to, when we hear that, when we hear that line, um, to forget the self is to become the myriad things. We, we like that line at first, right? Because it's like we think, yeah, we're going to become flowering cherry blossom trees. You know, it's kind of this, we're going to become all these wonderful things that are rising. But we're also going to become all the violence of this world. We're also going to become the massive injustice of our experience and nation. We're also going to become the slave trade 
of women in the world, we're also going to become the prison industrial complex. We're also going to become the history of racism. We're going to become those things. Not just the cherry blossom trees. So, when we, are we willing, this is the question for the Zen practitioner, are we willing to become the myriad things? Are we willing to completely open up to everything that is as me? So, and to be just with those things. So just. This idea of justice is not a word that we necessarily use in Buddhism, but it's not because it's not in Buddhism. We just use a different word, dharma. The root, the Greek root for justice is dike, which is an Indo-European cognate, of dir, which is dharma. They're the same word. Today in the Indian courts, the word dharma is used to mean justice. Why? Because in the beginning of both of these ideas, to be just was to be in line with the natural order of existence. To not tear it. To be just in Buddhism is to see accept, recognize, and realize our independent causality. And to be that, to be that interdependence. And when the Buddha talks about karma, he talks about one special situation of, he talks about human, the way human will coming from separation is related. Right? So if I have a desire from a sense of separate self to do something to the world. And I apologize to my poor nephews and nieces for the parts of this that is not kid-friendly or young person-friendly for those who are not kids. Um, but let's just say this. When we don't realize that all the insects of the world all the trees, all the people, everything that moves, when we forget that they are me, we do harm. When we act, the Buddha said, and that forgetting they are me and thinking I'm separate from them is what the Buddha calls karma. And we act from that place. And when we act from that place, either one of two things happen. Either we do it with a good intention, and we cause wholesome, good, kind karma, or we act from a negative intention, and we cause unwholesome or not very kind karma. But this is a really important thing when we're going to talk about justice, which is the Buddha did not talk about being good and bad. Never. And the reason is, the word kusala and akusala, which is the words he uses, does not translate anywhere close to good and bad. It'd be better to talk about him in terms of that which causes harmony and that which causes harm. So, when we are looking at the way we act in the world, are actions resulting in harmony or are they resulting in harm? One of the reasons there's no such thing as a good or a bad person in Buddhism is because person is problematic, who's going to be the permanent self that's always good? Where are you going to find that? 
And this is what we do. When we start taking in the suffering of the world, in a sense of wanting to be just, one of the first things we do is, I'm a bad person. Because I'm a part of all this. Waste of time. <laughs> Complete waste of time. The quicker you can throw out being a good person or a bad person, the better chance you have of actually being effective in the world. The rest is just this churning in the mind that is no help. You have to watch it because I talked a lot. Um, the, um, so, but to look, and the other problem with good and bad is the Buddha understood that all action is contextual. So you can't define an action or a relationship as good in every situation or as bad in every situation. It's not possible. That's what upaya or skillful means that the Buddha talks about, being skillful in every situation. We have to pay attention to the context. This has a great deal to do with the violence that people feel um, when there have been histories of violence. You might say one set of words to one person, which is fine, but you said it to another, and then suddenly there's a, a response that you don't understand. And you say, well, there must be something wrong with that person. Nothing wrong with the person. Different context. History of power imbalance. History of violence. And so to attend to the context is critical to being just and being Buddhist. The Buddha, when he talked about the Four Noble Truths, did not say, um, he said, there are causes and conditions of suffering that we must understand. So I want to talk about the difference, and we'll talk about this this afternoon, the difference between social service and social justice, very quick. Because socially engaged Buddhism can hold both, right? Social service, people are hungry, I set up a soup kitchen. Nothing wrong with that, but that's social service. Social justice, why is it that we need to set up soup kitchens? That's the difference. I believe what the Buddha was asking us to do is look at the causes and conditions of violence when we are not in a line with the realization of dependent co-arising, of interconnectedness. Why is it that we have a society not in alignment with that understanding? What is going on? Soup kitchens are good, not enough. So, to, to... And not only that, so that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is we have this idea that our minds are somehow personal to us. That somehow I am the one not influenced by the history of ideas that have created this country. We don't like the words white supremacy. If you pay any attention, there is a kind of leaning toward white people being in power in this country. We can actually admit that or not admit that, but it's kind of there. So, why? What are the causes and conditions of that? You have two choices, really. And you get to decide which side you're on. There is either an ongoing delusional belief system 
that those people, for whatever reason, are entitled to that power. Or there's just something wrong with everybody else. They just can't figure it out. You get to choose which one of those you believe. But I think it would help to look deeply into our own minds and into the discourse of the country and start paying attention and beginning to understand what that is. But we have all internalized these ideas. We were grown up in them. And to open up to the myriad things is to open up to that conditioning and to see it. But what kicks in right away? I'm a good person. I can't possibly have internalized those ideas. I can't possibly be me. But at that moment, our Zazen posture goes like this. It folds right over. We are not being just with our experience. We are not living the interconnectedness of our life. We are making a separate person who somehow is not affected by those things. It is not affected by misogyny. It is not affected by patriarchy. It is not affected by how many tens of thousands of years of the ill treatment of women. We don't even know. It's so old. It's the air we breathe. If we start to really take it apart, it's very hard to find the end of it. A leaning toward a particular gender expression and the way it should be, a leaning toward a, uh, a way uh, our own sexual preferences and who we want to love and be with. These are the decisions. They're hard-coded. We may have strong beliefs that things are another way, but as Buddhists we need to look at those beliefs. And if we fall on the other side violently, problem too. These are the ways it should be. Everybody should be able to do these things, and people who do not agree with me are awful. They're conditioned to. No one chose their conditioning. No one chose their conditioning. I did not choose mine. However, I am responsible for that conditioning. So if I have a mind that basically, I was born, I have this mind, suddenly it starts getting filled up with the ideas of my society. I don't know any different. I have nothing to compare it to. Nobody gave me choices. I don't remember. I would love, in six months, okay, you get to have this set of beliefs or this set of beliefs. <laughs> no, I got the ones I got. And so the question I have as a Buddhist is, which ones cause harm and which ones support harmony? And harmony is not niceness. I know that in the South that is not necessarily a good thing to say. <laughs> But harmony is not niceness. Kindness is not niceness. Harmony without dignity is a cover for violence. Always. If everyone's dignity is not fully allowed to have voice, we are just playing a little game over top of violence. This is really important for a spiritual community. 
because it's so easy to play nice. And so we will talk more about this this afternoon. I'm going to stop now. We'll talk more about this afternoon. But I would encourage, we are being tasked to hear the cries of the world. I would encourage this spiritual community and all to not unconsciously shut down those cries. Whether they be your own in your own body or those of your sangha community or of the world, we have all kinds of ways of repressing, suppressing, and oppressing those cries. The first thing we do in zazen is learn to listen to our own pain. If we are going to move through healing the violence of our world, the first thing we need to do is listen to all the cries of the people who we have dismissed, disallowed, said we're not legitimate, they weren't the right way of doing things, there is a way and that's not it. To let those cries come forward and cultivate a body that can be the ears and the eyes and the heart of the Dharma. I think that's enough. Your thoughts? Thank you. <laughs> Thoughts, concerns, questions, terrors. Yes, Betty. Um, as you were talking, um, it seems uh, to me that it's possible to become overwhelmed by yes. these feelings <laughs> and have it almost um, immobilize you. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I don't really feel I can change all that. You know, all, all I can do is feel bad about it. Did we say anything? Did I say anything about changing it? <laughs> and the reason isn't because it doesn't need to change. It's because that's where we go right away. When we get uncomfortable and sad, we want to change everything. Not because, not even because we want it to be better, because we want to stop feeling pain and sadness. You know. So the first thing to do if you're going to have a sane response, and I mean a sane response, is to just feel the sadness. The heart has to break. An unbroken heart cannot respond. It doesn't know how to respond. What it does, what happens, is this kicks in. The heart has to break completely open, and in its breaking open, this is the thing, the outflow of the heart breaking open also allows the inflow to come. It allows the universe to come in, and there's support that you didn't have because you can't have all that support on your own. If we're a tiny little individual being, you're absolutely right. We have not, we don't have a chance. But if we let ourselves completely break open and feel it, then something comes in that is far more powerful than anything we can imagine or will ever imagine. We don't even know what it is. It's life itself. And life always heals itself. 
we can tear this world apart and the minute we're gone, which we might make happen, Mother Earth will heal herself. So, if we can trust the healing force of life and open to it, then we have a shot. But yeah, in the meantime, now that's the big answer. The little answer is, when it's overwhelming, back off for a little bit. We don't need to read every news article. I'm personally convinced there's suffering in the world. <laughs> I don't need to read every single article and rile myself up. What I need to do is live from an open, broken heart and begin responding to that suffering immediately in the way that I can. Some of that is giving talks about an Dharma center. Some of that is forming action coalitions of Buddhists in New York to start responding to violence against people of color and things that are actually happening in the world. And those feed each other. The experiences of being with communities that are not the ones I normally find myself in working for justice of their lives in, not in some helping way, but in solidarity, that affects me and my notion of strength and what strength looks like and what it is to be a community in the world. So it it's, goes like this. So yeah, it's really hard. Their 23rd Psalm, it's a good one. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. There is, we are, this is the valley of the shadow of death. Would you talk a little bit more about helping versus solidarity? I think there's something there that needs to be expanded. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, helping is what, forgive me if this upsets people, but it's true. Helping is what white people and patriarchy does. You know, we got it figured out. We're going to go help all these people who don't have it figured out. And progressives fall into this all the time you know poor things we need to go help them that needs to be really flipped like now because the communities that we think we're helping have actually already figured this stuff out not that there's not problems but this whole individual thing that we all do and we're individuals in competition with each other and all that, that, that doesn't necessarily... So the question is, I don't want to too essentialize this, but the question is, can we go into our relationships with other communities where everybody's wisdom is recognized? Because we don't, nobody has the wisdom. No community has all the wisdom. So to go into a community in solidarity is, you have strengths and wisdom, I have strengths and wisdom. There needs to be equal place at the table for your voice as there is for mine. Completely. And in the short term, actually maybe a little more for the communities who have not been allowed to have a voice forever. Maybe a little more voice. Because to correct for the massive inequity and violence 
we need to make space so that we can learn. But solidarity is, um, we really are in this together. We really are. And it is also recognizing that oppression is something that's done to everyone. It demoralizes, degrades, and drains the dignity from the oppressor as, it mu- as much as it does from the oppressed, maybe more. And so there is a whole lot of exploratory work that needs to be done from a very humbled position, recognizing that there are aspects of who I am that have been spiritually compromised and I don't know my way out. And so maybe I can talk to you and listen to you from a place of humility. Not, because the reverse can happen too, not in you don't want to help, but you also don't want to get. I want to go get stuff now. Come back and be a good person again. People do that with Zen. But they also do it with people of color, and they also do it with women. They also do it when they start to wake up and realize that, oh, I really am confused. Well, now I'm going to go to women, people of color, and get stuff, so I'm not going to be confused anymore. No, that is also not solidarity. That's just exploitation in a in another form. Could solidarity and sangha be seen as essentially the same thing? I would hope. I think that's what the Buddha had in mind. I think sangha is, is solidarity. I don't know that sangha always expresses itself as solidarity in every situation. Often it does not, because often my experience of sangha in the United States is that the same white supremacy and patriarchy that run the rest of the world run the sanghas. And so that doesn't feel like solidarity. So I think there's only, the, only way to, the only way to begin to address that is to really look at those issues. And are there places for all voices? You know, we have all the Soto Zen hierarchy stuff too, but we also have these Dharma share circles that come together where the Sangha just sits there and there's no hierarchy. And people just speak into the center of the circle what their experience is in that moment and everybody witnesses it and then another person and then another person and another person. Nothing is accomplished except a shared Zazen mind of allowing all voices to be present and accepted and heard, which is the experience, which is the relationship we should have with ourselves. To overcome patriarchy in ourselves and to overcome patriarchy in society are the same. We have to give room for, for men in particular, the squashed feminine that was humiliated out of them. And I'm just going to use the word feminine. These are blunt terms. But you don't become a patriarchal oppressor unless you were a beaten boy. No boy is born going, I want to do this. I just don't believe it. Emotions were humiliated, sometimes quite literally beaten out of people until there was nothing left but a commitment to rationality and rage. Or complete emotional shutdown, which usually has rage in it too. But that, we don't get the work internally of opening. It's often why we can't open externally, right? because we can't open internally. 
We have to do the work of opening internally to these exiled parts of ourselves so we can actually open externally to the exiled parts of our society. They have to both be going all the time. Yes? Can you talk a little bit about um, anger and how it can be harmful or hopeful? Yeah. (laughs) Anger's always, I think anger's great. Depending. (laughs) So, we have, um, we have a very anemic emotional language in English. You know, we say anger for something that has 50 different incarnations, right? There is an anger that is about control. The world isn't the way I want it. Damn it, you know, and so we're going to be angry. We have an anger that comes up because there is a humiliated, shamed part of ourselves that if anybody scratches it, we come at them with a rage. There are all kinds of angers, but there is one anger that is different from all of that. And the anger that I think all of the 99% of the angers, I would say, is a surface anger. And underneath that is going to be frustration or control or shame or humiliation. So when we're feeling anger, we need to look at what's under it. But I do think there's one anger that's a little bit different. And that is the anger that sees violence that will not end and comes up and says, enough. That is a different anger. I don't even think it deserves the name anger. I think it deserves the name a sacred enough, a sacred no. Outrage. Yeah. Outrage, I even get tricky. Outrage. Yeah, I know. People say outrage, but outrage can be, yeah. I'm really outraged because I wasn't treated well. Well, you know, it gets tricky. But yes, that's probably the closest thing we have. It just has that unfortunate word rage in it. <laughs> um, but... Um, But yeah, that is different. And discerning. And so when people, women know this, right? When when you have an experience of that anger, and then somebody says to you, you're really angry. And they treat it like the other anger. That is a little frustrating. Really? I would imagine. Um... We all have that experience. I mean, if we touch into ourselves, we have, we've all been children. We have all, in some situation, at some time, had a clear emotion that was shoved, down, shoved back down our throat as neurotic. So we all have this experience. It's just some people have this experience every five minutes, every day. Constantly. I remember as a child what it was like to be poor and have my dignity crushed multiple times a day. Being embarrassed because of food stamps or wearing certain clothes that people made fun of or whatever it was. Just, I remember that. I don't experience that now. And for me, it's a real gift to see the difference. If you're in one all the time, it's sometimes hard to see the difference. If you're in the other, where your dignity doesn't get challenged hardly ever, you really can't see. 
but um, but that that experience of having one's dignity challenged constantly as sanghas we have got to make room for giving voice to that and not replicating it so does that get to it thank you Folks who don't normally speak, who have a terribly burning question or assertion, Okay, so hold on. That's a couple questions. One is, what has broken my heart? Yes. And the other is, what do I find most challenging? Yes. And compelling. Compelling. The first thing that broke my heart before I ever knew what it was to have a broken heart was that I know intimately what it is to be regularly, profoundly humiliated and threatened. So... That was my that was my experience as a young person. Um, and when I see that, I cannot tolerate it. That's how that happened for me. For some people, the opposite happens. They, that's what they do. They start becoming a humiliator and a threatener and so on. And I've certainly had those impulses in my life without question to defend my own myself. But, um, yeah, that was the first heartbreak that I didn't even know was a heartbreak until much later. But now, you know, now what it is is I, I cannot... Um, we cannot, this is the anger I was talking about, we cannot humiliate each other. It has to stop. We cannot humiliate Mother Earth anymore with the way we behave. We cannot humiliate people of color. We cannot humiliate women. It has to stop. And now we have a political culture that is justifying humiliation that is raising it up as something appropriate. We've always had it. You know, I think humiliation has been a part of this country since day one. 
I mean, we started off by killing everyone who was here. Then we took a whole other people and enslaved them. So, it, you know, it's, humiliation has been part and parcel to the way we've designed the culture. But it has to stop. It has to stop. And our hearts know it. And, if we, and the most challenging thing, letting our hearts lead. Because to let our hearts lead means that we put aside all the fear stuff that keeps us from letting that happen. Which means to put aside the fear stuff means we have to study the fear. We have to study fear in detail. We have to study every part of us that's terrified. And we have to sit in that terror. Our zazen has to be in the fire of that terror. So that our hearts can be free. And when we can live from that, we will stop humiliating each other. But that's it. So yeah, that's, that's a lot. That's difficult, but it's what's got to happen. Thank you. Okay, so what's going on? Is this just too much? <laughs> yes, Pat, thank you. No, not unfair at all. No, not unfair at all. I think, um, I think if we don't work on vulnerability, we, this doesn't go anywhere. So, um, It's interesting to answer this question with family in the room. <laughs> Some of them are very aware. My two sisters are here. They know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, my nieces and nephews may not. The, um, It's not unfair to ask, but I'm not sure that I'm going to talk about it in much detail at this moment. Yeah, but, uh, but I would just say, when you erase a child's agency completely, when they have no right to exist as a person in your mind, you create something very pained and potentially very dangerous. So, in the old days, we did not make room for children's voices. And we thought that was a good idea. Um, I think we need to have a relationship to children that is, we have to have discipline, and I don't mean punishment, I mean discipline, in the good sense of the word, Zen is a discipline, and it's a good one. 
But Zen is a discipline that when it's in its best incarnation, in its best way of being, is about creating the circumstances for Buddha nature, for your realized self to come forward completely into the world. And so should be childhood. Yes. I was wondering if you'd be like a what I said. The question was to repeat what I said, just said. I'm really bad at repeating things, but I'll try. Um, because it involves memory. <laughs> um, Zen in its best form is about creating the circumstances and discipline that creates the space for Buddha nature or our realized, awakened, authentic being to come forward into the world. That's what this discipline is about. It's about disciplining us in a way so that we can see everything that's in the way of us coming forward as an authentic being. That is how childhood should be too. Yes? One last one statement I have is, is uh, you speak of our current you know, political climate as sort of encouraging humility Humiliation. That is just something that I struggle with just daily. You know, it's, it's, it is quite painful sometimes just to, to read the news mm-hmm. and to feel all of these injustices that are taking place on an, and, and, and being accepted. That I really struggle with that. I mean, the fact that you know, people are having to use DNA to kill their children just breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know if I'm just I'm making a statement. I'm not asking for you know some resolution, I just feel the need to share that. Yeah. Yeah, it's overwhelming. It breaks my heart. Yeah. Yeah, um, so Trump was saying that ICE was um, the Border Patrol are exemplary people and honorable. But when they board a bus in New Mexico or Arizona, they stop a bus and get on and ask people for their papers. Thanks. I didn't know that was illegal, but there was one person on that bus that knew the law, and she said, "You don't have to show them anything. This is not. They don't. They have to have some sort of warrant to search you. You do not have to show them who you are. There's a paper. People are not illegal. Mm-hmm. And they left the bus. Mm-hmm. But how does it? That one person. How? She spoke up. How do you get to be that one person? <laughs> I think we get to be that one person by, built by, by becoming a community of those people. The, the, there aren't superheroes who could suddenly can do everything themselves. People like that come out of communities of strength. And we have allowed our communities to be completely obliterated 
And I don't mean just through violence, I mean through consumerism. When I was young, you asked your, friend, your neighbor for eggs, you asked your neighbor for, for help if your car battery was dead. Now, that's an embarrassment. You know, so, so there's something that's happened where we have, our communities have splintered. Not every community, but a lot of them. And so when I was, when this happened, and, and for me, Trump is just a, a radical expression of, of the way we've been for a very long time. We just pretended it wasn't happening. Um, he's making it worse by telling people this, whatever struggle, this is what concerns me the most, whatever struggle people had around being allowed to hate, that's being released. That struggle. That's being made okay. That's my biggest concern. Um, but, um, yeah, I think we, I think Sangha, when, when this happened and I was considering what's the response, what really struck me is the response is to build just communities. Because it's only just communities that can respond. And whatever, I know people are, this is my opinion, this is not the truth, this is just my opinion. I think that there is a whole lot of flexing of um, authoritarian potential. People are, I think there's a whole lot of seeing what we can really get away with. And um, it's going to be community that disallows that. It's going to be solidarity that disallows that. It's going to be all of us that disallows it. And when we have deep connection to each other, it's easier to stand up. Because I'm not standing up for me. I am also standing up for me. But I'm not just standing up for me. I'm not sitting up here talking just for me about this. These are all my people. And I don't want my people harmed. And so we have to talk about justice. So it's... Um, I think we have to embed ourselves in communities for a long time, in transformative communities. And the communities have to support each other being that strong. In Tori Zenji's Bodhisattva's vow, we're reminded that uh, to be grateful for those who become our enemy uh, because that's a, a ground for the Buddhist teaching to yeah. manifest itself. Yeah. And this is partly in response to Barbara asking about being overwhelmed. I think we should recognize that before we allow ourselves to get caught up too much in high dudgeon about Trump, and there's plenty of justification yeah, sure. for that, we need to be careful that we're not falling into a trap. Uh, in a funny sort of a way, we owe Trump a certain amount of gratitude because what he's doing is making visible right. that which has been submerged for so long. You don't know the kitchen needs cleaning until you see the cockroaches. Yeah. <laughs> and so just when we feel ourselves totally overwhelmed and we feel ourselves getting sucked into 
that wrong kind of anger, that wrong kind of rage, just just a moment of recognizing that there's a little bit of Trump in each of us too. There's not only so two things. One is yes, it's it's a reminder. It's it's a I want to I want to complicate one thing you said and then agree. (laughs) The one I would complicate is he is a reminder, or he has brought into view the violence of this country for some people. Ah, Yes, for those willing to see. No, no. For white people who didn't see before. Oh, okay. There's no confusion about this. Trump is nothing new for people who have black skin in, or skin considered black in this country. They were not surprised. It wasn't a new thing. It wasn't something that suddenly happened. It wasn't the worst thing ever to happen in the country. So when it gets, or a number of other people for that matter, you know, women are not surprised by misogyny because Trump's in power now. Um, so it's, you know, there are, they surprised that we've allowed this to be central to the highest position in our land. That's a little shocking and scary, but it's not a new thing. Um, but for those of us, you know, I, I compare Trump to Vietnam in the sense that the civil rights movement was going on and people were saying, our country is violent. Our country is full of um, imperial, colonial rage and violence towards people. But most white people couldn't hear until Vietnam happened and they saw the US. Black Lives Matter was telling us really clearly what was going on in this country. Nobody listened. Until Trump came into power, now, oh my God! So, it's new to some, but it's in, that's it doesn't mean it's any less important. I just think we have to be really careful. And um, and yeah, the other thing is, yeah, he, he there is Trump in all of us. And whether it be and and what and I'm not saying, I would say that internalized racism is there, but I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about the risk of the humiliated parts of ourselves taking control. That's the risk. Because if they take control, we are all equally dangerous. I think that's, I think we're at our limit, time-wise, probably mind-wise, too. <laughs> well, thank you all very much for listening and, and um, for speaking. And we'll be talking more about this later, in, in more practical ways, actually. This afternoon is going to be about turning this into ways scientists can actually respond to the things we're talking about. So, thank you.